Hello there, my name is Alexandra Helen Nicholas and I'm a film critic from Melbourne, Australia. I've published nine books on cult, horror and exploitation film, many with an emphasis on gender politics, including my 2020 book 1000 Women in Horror, 1895-2018, in which our golden girl here, Jennifer Jason Lee, makes a significant appearance. Now we have a huge amount to get through here today with Sister Sister, this is one of my favourite kinds of movies because on the surface it looks sort of fluffy and disposable, but once you scratch the surface there's just an enormous amount going on in so many different ways. One of those questions is even what genre this film falls into, but before we try and peel that onion I want to talk about this opening scene. This sequence for me taps into so many of the things that are happening in this film. From an analytical perspective, it really to me is like the perfect example of how this film is sort of one of those classic textbook hidden in plain sight films. So even before we get to the sexy times, we have three elements that in varying degrees recur through the film as visual motifs. One of these is mirrors. Mirrors are everywhere in this film. It's one of those things you probably don't even fully register consciously, but when you do, it becomes impossible to miss them. Going right back to classical Hollywood cinema and even earlier, mirrors have had a real attraction for filmmakers as a symbolic force, especially in stuff like film noir or anything really dealing with identity. They are obviously a pretty straightforward visual reference, uh, you know, a symbol for uh, things relating to identity, how we see ourselves and how others see us. Mirrors are never just accidental in film. And as the filmmakers amongst you will know, they are an absolute bitch to film. You actually have to do quite a bit of work to set up mirrors in a shot so that the director or the camera person or the sound people or any of the other crew aren't reflected and turn up in the reflection in the shot. So yes, mirrors in film, never coincidental, never accidental. And it's not rocket science, but all the things mirrors in film signify are really crucial to the bigger picture of Sister Sister especially. This is a movie interested in distorted or indirect realities and refracted, corrupted or duplicitous identities. Now ostensibly the most unstable identity in the film of course is Lucy herself, as we very much have implied from this opening dream sequence. But as I'll go into later, in many ways I think she's probably the most sane and rational person in the entire film when it comes down to reacting in a, in a rational, appropriate manner to circumstances that themselves are irrational and far from appropriate. Before we get there though, let's think about some of the other visual key motifs that we get in this dream sequence, and water is an obvious one. We're told later in the film in passing that rain is good, that there's been a dry season. Now, this is hard to believe from our perspective because water just permeates this film and its significance uh, in this opening sequence especially is hard to miss. I don't want to get too academic here, but it's worth giving a shout out to Carl Jung, the thinking person Sigmund Freud, if you like, and his thoughts on the water archetype, where he said, quote, water is the commonest symbol for the unconscious. The lake in the valley is the unconscious, which lies, as it were, underneath consciousness, so that it is often referred to as the subconscious, usually with the pejorative connotation of an inferior consciousness. He continues, when one dreams of baptizing, taking a bath, the ocean or water in general, you must realize you are being pushed into the unconscious for purification. You have to go into the water because of the renewal, but it remains unknown what comes after. 
So this is hardly radical, but in Sister Sister, absolutely water, whether it's in that opening dream sequence where trauma related to sexual assault comes literally flooding back to the surface, or the numerous shots throughout the film of water, Lucy having the bath, the bayou itself, all those beautiful numerous shots of the shadows of the reflected rain coming through the windows to hit the boarding house's walls, water is everywhere. That phrase that it's all flooding back is really made literal through the use of water in this film. One last thing that we got in that opening dream sequence that I'd really like to flag, although it's not as overt as mirrors and water especially, it is a repeating motif throughout the film, and that is clocks. Time is a really central motif in this film, you know, the concept of time. And most literally, we move back and forth between past and present through flashbacks in terms of how the film is structured. But for much of the film, at least, we focus on two sisters who are stuck in the past with no real sign of any kind of future. The clocks keep ticking. We actually hear the sound at key points, even if we don't see clocks. So we have this weird dislocation between both being aware of time moving ahead, which sits in this really weird tension, I guess, with the fact that time in many ways is standing still or isn't moving at all. Uh, I'd also briefly like to flag the crucifix that we saw above Lucy's bed in that opening dream sequence. Religious symbols aren't overt in this film, but they are present. Uh, most significant, I think, is Etienne's murder in the Bayou later in the film by bow and arrow in shots uh, compositionally that really recall the iconic death of St. Sebastian as presented throughout art history. Okay, so what we very much get from that opening dream sequence is the picture of Lucy as a young woman with active, relatively healthy sexual desires, but, and it's pretty obvious symbolism here, those fantasies are destroyed when the walls crack open and the outside world reality starts pouring in. Her subconscious associations between sex and violence, they can't be debugged, for want of a better word. Now, it's perhaps easy to miss, but while the water starts rushing into the point where she's completely submerged, the sex scene actually continues, and she does at one point try to push her partner away. This is someone she was having consensual sex with, but with her repressed subconscious trauma, she tries to push him off and he resists. So to spell that out, consensual sex in the first few moments of this film turns into non-consensual sex. Now stating the obvious, this of course all feeds back to that crucial scene around which the entire film's action hinges, the big secret, which is the attempted rape of Lucy's sister Charlotte, at her birthday party when she was a teenager by her boyfriend Judd, which Lucy interrupts and between the two girls they fight him off, resulting uh, in them killing him, which they cover up by disposing his body in the bayou and they don't get caught. Now this is therefore, for me at least, very much in a sense a film about rape trauma. For all the oh she's so crazy ambience that surrounds Lucy, she in fact seems the most reasonable in terms of her response to the horrors that she and Charlie endured when they were younger. If you watch that scene really carefully, the the you know that crucial flashback scene to the attempted rape or attempted rapes, um, I would argue that both girls were attacked. Uh, certainly they were physically. Uh, I would also argue sexually. Judd, Judd was definitely attempting to rape Charlie. And that's in Charlie's own words. Uh, and that was only thwarted by little Lucy. And she really is a little child at that point. And she fought him off. Now, in retaliation, he then attacks Lucy. Now, this isn't made as explicit as it is in the case of Charlie as an attempted rape. 
But if you watch that scene and look how he is positioned on top of the squirming child, that combined with Charlie's really intense fear and violent reaction that leads to the killing of Judd, I think it's pretty implicit that on the slim chance that he wasn't trying to rape the young Lucy, then Charlie at least interpreted it that way. And certainly what we see in Lucy, I think in this film, is rape trauma. So yes, rape trauma for me lies very much at the heart of this film. These are attempted rapes, but the trauma of um, the the trauma of that experience is is the same. Charlie is in denial and more concerned, I think, with the practical issue of covering up her killing of Judd and Lucy's role in that, to the point where she's actually happy for Lucy to be institutionalized for three years and heavily medicated because Lucy's not capable of repressing what happened with Judd and pretending that it's business as usual in the same way that Charlie is. Charlie's a really complex figure and I'm not wholly convinced that she's totally the noble protector of her sister that she makes out. But again, I'll get to that later in the commentary. They couldn't see cause, well, they have to wait for exactly the right moment when the sister can be told. Now, this part you're not going to believe. Three years go by. Well, that's over a thousand days and nights. And still, there's just no right time. You just don't understand. No, wait, wait. I told you I solved this case today. See, I figured out what the guy's problem is. It has nothing. Alright, so let's start getting a little deeper into Sister Sister. Now, as I've made pretty clear, I really do think that rape trauma lies very much at the heart of this film, especially in terms of repression and guilt. And once Matt enters the picture, we start to get a very complicated web of gaslighting that I'll argue was already there. But before we get to that stuff, I just wanted to discuss the question of genre because some critics have just straight up butchered this they've just made enormous tits of themselves by doing so may i add i'm not going to mention names here not out of any kindness or generosity of spirit of my part but simply because i don't want to signal boost shitty critics but the very worst reviews of this films that i've come across are those that dismiss it as a slasher with ideas above its station um i mean this is just garbage brain film thinking these people are bad at their jobs now i love slasher so i'm not diminishing slasher and yes of course there are certain slasher elements to sister sister but if we take our hand off it long enough and stop being highbrow wankers about it 
what we in fact discover here is something I think that's super, super interesting. For me, and I know I'm not alone in this, Sister Sister falls into that slasher tradition I think that's much more closely aligned with what Michael Coven has christened the North American Jalo. Now, Sister Sister isn't a North American Jalo in the same way that something like Happy Birthday to Me or Halloween is. John Carpenter, of course, has quite famously said that he was influenced by Italian Jalo films. But what we do have here is a series of murders, including that of Paul Bo the dog, committed by an unseen assailant, wielding a knife in a kind of Jalo-esque fashion. And while they don't wear the Jalo killer's iconic black leather gloves, I think the focus, you know, the fetishization of the white gardening gloves certainly are close enough to let us know that we're, we're, in, uh, we're in Jalo territory. It's not a coincidence. Now, all of this, of course, is to suggest that for a period at least, that the killer is Etienne. That, that's what the gardening gloves are a reference to and, and the knife because we see him with the knife at another point. Um, but the murder, of course, of Etienne puts that theory to bed. The relationship between Italian giallo film and slasher is a super interesting one, and I'm obviously not going to go in really in depth here, but just as a very quick summary, the success of the Italian giallo film internationally was really strong. These films were all dubbed in post, so they could easily be redubbed in different languages, which meant that they could, you know, be screened anywhere, and often had a very big, um, you know, a big star, often an American movie star in them, so they were very agile and very adaptable when it came to foreign distribution. Now, what this meant in practical terms uh, was that we see those influences of Italian giallo in North American slasher, as I've noted, but then those films in turn go back to Italy and to Europe more generally uh, and influence the neo-giallo uh, that was happening in, in Italy, especially in the 80s and, and the 90s. So when we talk about Sister Sister as a giallo, it's really through those transnational flows that we see that influence manifest. It's not a quote-unquote giallo film in the same way that we would call something like Dario Argento's Deep Red a, a giallo film, of course. But at the same time, we do have the nod to this iconography with the gloves and the knife. Um, we do have this kind of Baroque, you know, intersection I think of sex and violence and just the broader aesthetic of the film you know the, these things sort of entwine I think in really fundal, fundamental ways that link it quite closely to the North American Jalo. For me yes sure there are what we might identify as pure slasher elements here but it is very much through that historical lens of the North American Jalo film and to miss that as so many critics have I think just shows a little bit of ignorance regarding how, you know, the history of, of slasher film in, in North American uh, cinema by, by a lot of main, mainstream critics. Now, this, of course, helps lead us to the broader question of genre in this film. And again, I think it's a lot more slippery than we might first think. Like, yes, there's a core here about rape trauma, but obviously this is not a social issues film by any stretch. This is, to state the obvious, not social realism here. Just focusing on the way that so much of this film is shot and the kind of Rapunzel-like nature of how Lucy can't leave the property, and even the death by bow and arrow, you know, there's something about this film that, to me, almost has a fairy tale quality to it. Just the way that the swamp is represented here too is so magical. Obviously the scenes with the ghost is really key here. It's just so ethereal. But even just more broadly, this is a, like a kind of abstracted, dark fairy tale space. 
This is, to be clear, an entirely different world from the swamp setting of something like Beverly and Ferd Sebastian's Gator Bait, for example. You know, here we have all that dry ice and those beautiful silhouettes of the trees at night. It feels for me at least to be so much more closely tied to the world of classical fairy tales like we get in, in the stories of the Brothers Grimm. I mean, I think at one point Lucy actually calls Matt her prince. So if we don't see this through the lens of a fairy tale, I think that Lucy herself sh sh certainly does. But the primary ways into this film, I think, hinge around hybridity. This film isn't one thing. I think it's all of these things and, and a lot of other things besides. Some of the really main things I guess I want to touch on here are about the Gothic, especially Southern Gothic, and the idea of abusive relationships, be it rape or more psychological forms of abuse, which again really tap into the Gothic, as do the film's more supernatural elements. Just in case that you got anything in mind, there's something that you should know. Nobody gets into her pants. Nobody. Hey, you mind picking up that bird? Pick it up by the wings. What the hell was that? It was a gator snap. I could have been killed. You had enough? You want to go back? Yeah, yeah, let's go back. Okay, so at this point it might be a really good starting place, I guess, to begin with a bit of a primer about the Gothic in general before we move, move towards the terrain where I feel that this film is really situated, um, which of course is the Southern Gothic. Talking about the literary Gothic, there's a great quote from a woman called Peggy Dunn-Bailey who says, quote, The Gothic is the language of trauma. It records and reveals wounds and losses so profound that their repression or objection seems necessary but is impossible. I mean, if that doesn't straight up land us in the dead heart of Sister Sister, I don't, 
I just don't know how else <laughs> we we can. I mean, that that is like straight in linking the Gothic to Sister Sister. The Gothic is a huge field of study, but for me, at its core, the Gothic, I think, is fascinated between the relationship, between the past and the present. There's a quote that I'm kind of obsessed with by Leslie Fielder that I often think about when it comes to the Gothic, and and it relates, I guess, to its feel or its vibe, like a kind of sensibility as much as content, where he talks about the quote, the pastness of the past, a richly textured exploration of the sense of something lapsed or outlived or irredeemably changed. I mean, to me, that's like one of the best quotes about the Gothic ever. And this for me allows the Gothic to be both beautiful and simultaneously somewhat kind of grizzled. The presence of the part is the meat of the Gothic. And yeah, absolutely, we, we definitely see that in Sister Sister, not just in the story itself, but also in this strange out-of-timeness of it, not just in the production design, but those clocks that I mentioned earlier that suggest time moving forward, but the world of this film somehow not moving with it. It's, it's stuck and repressed. Now, I realise I'm quoting a little bit here, but I do think it's worth getting really as solid a handle as possible on the Gothic as a broader concept as we can. Clearly, obviously, by the Gothic, I'm not talking about corsets and eyeliner and Sisters of Mercy albums here. You know, you go for that if that's your thing. Um, I'm really talking up more as a kind of, you know, literary cultural tradition rather than a subcultural hot topic thing. Uh, Judgment-free free zone, I, I don't judge. Now, for Jeremy Hoggle, quote, Gothic has long been a term used to project modern concerns onto a deliberately vague, even fictionalised past. He says, quote, The Gothic has lasted as it has because its symbolic mechanisms, particularly its haunting and frightening spectres, have permitted us to cast many anomalies in our modern conditions, even as these change over onto antiquated or at least haunted spaces and highly anomalous creatures. This way, our contradictions can be confronted by, yet removed from us into, the seemingly unreal, the alien, the ancient, and the grotesque. Draped in all the dressings of the alluring contradictions and tensions between the past and the present that we see in a film like Sister Sister, the Gothic uses the past to address concerns immediately weighing upon the present, yet unable to be addressed without the distance created by this sort of signature nostalgic mystique or and hang-ups like in this film the then and the now in the gothic are inextricably linked but the blow of the urgency of frustrated modern concerns is softened by the synthetic blow i guess which is created by highly stylized terror and the kind of excessiveness of the gothic you know this this really common hyper theatricality now, as I keep saying, this is fundamentally a film about rape trauma and the associated guilt from killing the attempted rapist and getting away with it. There's so many ways that a story like this can be told when you think about it. But the soft focus and extremely feminine manner that Sister Sister chooses to tell this story, I feel plants it really firmly, just broadly, in the territory of the Gothic. The role of fear here is also really crucial, I think, in how it relates both to Sister Sister and the Gothic more broadly. Like, yes, supposedly crazy Lucy lives a life of fear, but I would argue that although she presents as much more in control, Charlie is just as scared, if not more. For Danny Cavallaro, quote, Fear is not disturbing because it intimates the fabric of our lives and apparently orderly weave is being disrupted or is about to be disrupted but because it shows us that the fabric has always been laddered and frayed. 
What is aberrant is not the disconcerting sensation of dread, but rather the fantasies of order superimposed upon life to make it look seamless and safe. So bam, there we have it. I keep saying that I don't think Lucy's as crazy as she's made out to be, and this is largely why. This issue Cavallaro raises about the gothic aberrants not being fear itself, but rather, and as I will keep arguing, I think this relates more to Charlie, it's more about the determined fantasy that everything is fine, that repression is a totally normal, healthy way to deal with trauma. There's such a great phrase there that uh, uh, the fabric of our lives has always been laddered and frayed. Now, Charlie, just she just cannot get a handle on that, and she lives in this huge denial. In fact, I think the fact that everyone seems to dismiss Lucy as cra- crazy, that actually gives Lucy enormous autonomy in a way. I mean, she's quite, she's dominated and she's oppressed, but she also doesn't have to pretend that everything's fine because it's not, and she knows it's not. To the others, that makes her crazy, but to me, that makes her far from crazy. Okay, so while we can see a broader connection between the Gothic as a modality or a sensibility or whatever it is that you want to call it, and Sister Sister, when we focus on the Louisiana setting of this film, we of course move very, very specifically towards the terrain of the Southern Gothic, which I think in many ways this film remains an unheralded classic. All these dickhead critics writing it off as a slasher film and using that term in a really snobby, derogative way, which again, I don't think they should because slasher is awesome. To miss the importance of the Southern Gothic or to see it as, as a sort of just a surface aesthetic thing really does do a gross disservice to Bill Condon's debut film. I realise I haven't mentioned Condon at all yet until now, but don't worry, I will get to him and many of our other key players as well. So when we think of Southern Gothic, I think we instantly think of stuff like like 
True Detective and Johnny Cash, you know, movies like Angel Heart, Night of the Hunter, Cape Fear, The Reflecting Skin, Deliverance, obviously too many to name. And there's obviously a very long literary heritage of Southern Gothic. You know, we've got writers like Flannery O'Connor, uh, William Faulkner, Carson McCullers, Cormac McCarthy, Edgar Allan Poe, Tennessee Williams, da-da-da-da-da, you guys get the idea. Now, as the very label Southern Gothic indicates, we're dealing with a very specific regional variation of the Gothic here, where place, and crucially, the history of place, is really essential. Geography is absolutely fundamental to the Southern Gothic. But, you know, so it related things like regional dialects, um, regional, you know, vernacular cultural things, uh, stuff like food, things like that, you know, the crawfish um, that, you know, there's a, a dance at the start of this of this film, which is, you know, like a crawfish celebration or, or festival. So Peggy Dunn-Bailey that I mentioned previously has a great summary of the Southern Gothic specifically, which I think is a great place for us to kick off with Sister Sister and why it's really just impossible to talk about this film and not talk about the Southern Gothic. She writes, quote, Southern Gothic literature is characterised by obsessive preoccupations with blood, family and inheritance, as well as the construction, destruction and or blurring of boundaries of gender, race and class, and the compulsion to talk or write about these preoccupations. Themes of family, blood as destiny and the centrality to identity of place, geographic and socioeconomic abound in Southern Gothic texts. And as we see here, they sure as hell do. We have that idea of destiny just with Charlie alone, who is sort of frozen in time. I, you know, she's unable to marry Cleve until the repressed trauma associated with Judd and events of the past are eventually resolved. Until then, she really believes that it's her destiny to care for Lucy in ways that I think we can all perhaps agree are less than healthy and I would actually go as far to say actually not just selfish but in many ways abusive but I'll get to that more shortly. So as a literary form the Southern Gothic really boomed from the start of the 19th century and hasn't really showed any signs of slowing down. Like the Gothic more broadly this is a huge you know field of study there's a lot of work on this subject so instead of me blustering my way through it, I just want to pull out a few key quotes to help us get a handle on this because I think it's just so locked in on such, such a fundamental level to Sister Sister in so many ways. David Grevin wrote a really good overview about the Southern Gothic in film that I think we can really draw direct parallels between uh, that and Sister Sister. And he said, quote, A wild polyglot America emerges from the Southern Gothic film tradition that, in its weird specificity, seems like an alternative version of the nation, especially given the emphasis on the northern states in the nation's self-presentation. If the South is always the moribund and morbid underside of the nation, left behind and forgotten even if preserved in the amber of nostalgia, Southern Gothic films challenge this status, a mythopoic realm far livelier and far more threatening to the stability and sameness of mainstream American life, at least in these pop mythic terms. So clearly influenced by the broader Gothic tradition, the centrality of geography and the history of place is really central to the Southern Gothic because all the subversiveness, perversity, horror and sense of estrangement or dislocation that marks the Southern Gothic, sometimes often with a really bleak, dark sense of humour, is tied to the paradoxes of the South itself in, on a symbolic level. On one hand, there's this idealised version of this sort of rural utopia, and the beauty of that is really amplified in films like this, 
it's just an extraordinarily beautiful part of the world when, you know, when it's brought to life on film, we see that. The flip side, of course, is the history of racism and slavery that is just entrenched in the history of the South. In, you know, in horror, especially Freud's notion of the return of the repressed, you know, that idea that the thing that you try to deny and bury and ignore will just sort of bubble up and explode in ways that you can't control. That really lies at the heart of the Southern Gothic in a very specific way. And we see that very clearly come to life in Sister Sister. And one of the things I find so interesting about this film is that it is a really classic Southern Gothic, but by eradicating the question of race completely, let alone the history of slavery, there's this really strange elephant in the room that I'm not sure, I, it, it could be quite deliberate. Like, it's pretty obvious that the Willows wasn't built as a boarding house. I mean, this is clearly a plantation house. Uh, and when this film talks about ghosts from the past, there's this very strong allusion to this history that the film both elides, but also at the same time almost gestures towards because that absence is so big, you know, like it's, it's, it really is a, a pretty massive elephant in the room. Teresa A. Goddard has flagged this stuff in terms not just of the Southern Gothic, but of the American Gothic more broadly, saying, quote, American Gothic, like Gothic more generally, is haunted by history. Instead of fleeing reality, Gothic registers its culture's anxieties and social problems. Often framed in terms of institutional power and oppression, Gothic records the pleasures and costs of particular social systems. Issuing from the context of New World slavery, American Gothic tells stories of racial desire and dread, of economic instability and anxiety. In 18th and 19th century US literature and beyond, the spectre of slavery inhabits Gothic texts, conjuring forth how American Gothic psychological and physical terror and its racialized narratives of darkness are grounded in the everyday realities of slavery. Now, Mark Daniel Schiller at American Cinematographer magazine certainly identifies the Willows in Sister Sister as, quote, an antebellum plantation house. And he also emphasizes what we get in the film but isn't really played up, that the film has been in the family for generations, therefore these are the descendants of slave owners. There's a toxicity that's implied in this world. It's very, very subtle, but I think this is where much of um, this toxicity comes from, right? And, and the film places a huge amount, this heavy, significant trust, I think, in the audience to pick that up. I think, I think that's what's going on. I'm not sure. There's different ways of reading this, I guess, and I certainly won't try to push your opinion one way or another. Um, but there's certainly no denying that this is a film about white people. And there's two different ways, I guess, that we can interpret that in the film. One is just that it's just straight out denial. It doesn't want to deal with the legacy of slavery and racism in the South, so it doesn't make it explicit because it wants to focus on Jennifer Jason Lee's tits instead. And certainly that's one position that can be taken when we approach this film, and maybe there's some validity to that claim. The other alternative, and the problem with this is that it risks being a kind of apologist uh, interpretation of the film, and you know none of us want to be assholes and do that, but I do regardless think that it, it is food for thought, is that this film is so heavily about the subjective experience of the two white women at its core, descendants of slave owners, we can pretty much assume that, and that because we see the world so much through their very, very narrow, suffocated point of view, black people just don't figure into it. They're invisible to them now, just, if they're, just as, as they have been historically invisible to their family. Now, again, I'm not sure if I buy that either, so I leave it up to you. I'm 
a white Australian, we have our own murky history when it comes to questions of violence, race, oppression, questions of visibility and representation. So, you know, I've got my own problems to deal with. Um, I have to confess that I have this secret little imagined ending of this film, which is that the sisters move out and they go and live happy, wonderful, healthy lives. And a huge black family with tons of kids and dogs and cats, they all move into the willows instead and live happily ever after. I realise here I'm going back to my sort of um, fairy tale reading of this film and um, this is probably not the, <laughs> the time or place for fanfic. But, yeah, the invisibility of black people and the history of slavery and racism is pretty complicated, I think, in this film. Like a lot of film history, the questions of representation, they really are about as much what uh, they really are about what is repressed as much as what is represented you know the question of what is not represented is is just as important think he spent the night here. Look here, Sheriff. All right, so at this point, um, look, I'll come back to the Southern Gothic more because it is so central to the film, but I do want to talk a little bit more about this really brilliant piece uh, about the film in American Cinematographer magazine. It's March 1988, if you're keen to track it down and read it in full. 
Schiller really goes hard on the delineation of Sister Sister as a gothic horror film there. That's really the focus, I think, of his piece. Now, being American cinematographer, it obviously comes as no surprise that Schiller interviewed the DOP, um, Stephen Katz, who, interestingly enough, was the same guy who shot the Blues Brothers. And Schiller writes, quote, Director of photography Stephen Katz approached Sister Sister as a romantic thriller that maintained a gothic feel. I didn't want to go over the edge visually, Katz explained. I liked a look that was both mysterious and romantic, yet I was always conscious of blending these styles with what was basically a realistic approach. Schiller continues, quote, In presenting a world of altered realities, Katz and director Condon designed a look which Condon describes as, quote, Eudora Welty filtered through Alfred Hitchcock. Schiller also talks to Katz about the specificity of the locations here and how that too ties into this gothic mood, writing, quote, The southern locations of wooded swamplands and deep bays lend the film a rich texture. It is an atmosphere which Katz describes as timeless. The Bayou region in southern Louisiana maintains a strong Cajun culture which evokes a mysterious and mystical feeling with its thick, brooding forests in the swamp. You get the feeling that the bayou is closing in on the aging plantations and that the green lawns are slowly being overtaken by the swamp, Cat states. Now, one of the most interesting things I think about this interview is the discussion of the actual locations where they shot both the exteriors and the interiors of this film themselves. The external shots of the sisters' home was uh, the Greenwood Plantation in St. Francisville in Louisiana, which today is, I'm not kidding, a bed and breakfast. So there's some parallels there with the willows, I guess, before we even begin. Now listed on the National Register of Historic Places, uh, Greenwood is about a mile and a half outside of St. Francisville, if you want to go there. It has a curious history. The plantation was built by a Quaker called Dr. Samuel Flower, who, when he died, he left the property to his 20-year-old daughter, Harriet. Now, Harriet married a judge and they exploited slave labor for their enormously successful agricultural business. They grew everything from cotton to indigo and by one account, they were in the top 10% of sugar growers in the state in the mid 1800s. Again, all driven by slave labor. By one count, they had 96 slaves who lived across 18 different living quarters. Now, the house is apparently still in the family today. I believe, I could be incorrect here, but I'm pretty sure that it's owned by the author, Anne Butler, who's published a lot, uh, including true crime stories set in Louisiana and uh, around St. Francisville. So if the exteriors have a story, wait till you hear about the interiors. These were shot at the Maidwood Plantation House on Bayou Lafourche in Thibodeau, also in Louisiana. My apologies if I mispronounce that. I'm Australian, that's what we do, we mispronounce things. This is another National Historic Landmark and another one-time sugarcane plantation house. Also, interestingly enough, now to a bed and breakfast. Now, if it looks vaguely familiar, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, this is actually the same house where they filmed some interior shots for Sophia Coppola's remake of The Beguiled in 2017. And the year before that, I kid you not, Bits of Beyonce's Lemonade were also filmed at Maidwood. Now, according to a story in the New Orleans Advocate newspaper from 1993, quote, one report shows 251 enslaved people at Maidwood in 1852, including many old people and children. For much of the year, slaves worked a six-day week, but during the sugar grinding season in late fall, slaves operated the sugar mill every day, 24 hours a day. 
So it was the money that the owner of this property, Thomas Pugh, made off this slave labour that gave him the money to build the very house that we see here. Again, like much of this film, the legacy of slavery is really, really hidden in plain sight. One of the notable things, I think, about this house from an architectural perspective is that it was one of the most famous houses in the region based on the Greek revival architectural style. It was created by an architect called Henry Howard, who's sort of synonymous with the Louisiana antebellum estate house look. He designed, I think, almost 300 houses in Louisiana alone during this period. So cinematographer Stephen Katz has talked a lot about how some of the strange elements of the house's internal design worked really, really well with the look that they were going for and its kind of overriding Gothic sensibility. In American Cinematographer, he told Schiller, quote, for this type of film, I liked forced perspectives. We went for triangles and interesting geometric compositions. I must admit that when I first saw the house, I was worried that everything was extremely vertical rather than horizontal. But then when I saw the compositions through the lens, I was impressed with how the compositions were nicely stretched across the frame. The architecture of the house became a fantastic location in which to place the actors. The large staircases and rooms gave wonderful compositions. He continued, we used a tulip crane in the house. It was great for certain shots in the huge empty rooms. One of my favorite shots in the film is from above a huge chandelier looking down at the characters in the empty ballroom. So as I said, I'll come back to the Southern Gothic more shortly, but while we're talking about Stephen Katz, this article also has a lot of great details about the production itself. Katz said, quote, I was lucky on this film that I had a very long prep time. I had a full eight weeks. We went down to Louisiana with a storyboard artist and did the storyboards after blocking the scenes in the actual locations. Shot on 35mm, Katz has very fond memories of shooting the interiors especially, adding, quote, I must say that the timing on this picture was the least painful of all my films. There were surprisingly no problems keeping a consistency throughout the film. A big part of that for him was how he could indulge in really maintaining that gothic aesthetic that is so central to the film. Quote, I like a look which is very mysterious yet has that silky quality to it. The shadows in Sister Sister are very dark. At the same time, I want to see what was in these shadows. When it came to the exteriors at Greenwood, however, he wasn't so positive, saying, the conditions were dreadful. We built a freshwater pool in the actual swamp to try to control the elements, but it was still horrible. The production company set off charges all the time to rid the area of snakes, and I must say that this wasn't a very comforting sign. So apparently the scene at the end of the film where all the ghosts appear was shot in actual rain. It was really raining, it wasn't fake rain. They had wanted to shoot on a soundstage, but the production company had very different ideas that on a technical and practical front proved very challenging for Katz and his team. There's a great story where they set up this enormous light as a stand-in for the moon that is so important, I think, to the look of those final, you know, that final moment. Um, but it ended up that they didn't need it. Katz says, quote, what happened was that the real moon decided to peek through that night and the real moonlight ended up being quite bright. We ended up with two moons. It became a big joke around the set that Billy and I were shooting a film with two moons. Regardless, Katz was very positive about the end result of the film, telling Schiller, quote, The Bayou is truly an amazing place to shoot. It lends to the film an atmosphere that, when captured on film, seems very calm and serene in one sense, and yet has this deep, moody feeling of evil just under the surface. The challenge is to create an interesting balance between these two tones. Billy is a real film historian. We looked at hundreds of films before we started shooting. We always went back to the films of Wells and Hitchcock. 
They are films which I love, so I was very eager to use them as my references. All right, so hang on to that mention about classical Hollywood films there because I'm going to come back to that one film in particular very soon. But before we get there, I'm going to go back to the Southern Gothic as I promised or threatened, um, especially when it comes to the subject of rape that is so important to this film. So while we can approach Sister Sister through the lens of things like the North American Cello film, fairy tales, things like that, the presence of the Southern Gothic, as I said, is really the cog at the heart of all of this. Now rape is not uncommon in the Southern Gothic, and indeed alongside slavery and racism and that ugly legacy, misogyny is also a really broad factor. Uh, and these are two things um, that have really, in many ways, really attracted both women and black writers and, and filmmakers to the Southern Gothic as a framework to explore this history in depth and from a fictional perspective. Uh, from Toni Morrison's Beloved to Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, it's really not hard to find very, very famous examples where race, sexual violence and the Southern Gothic have intersected. Christina Newland addressed this quite explicitly in an article for the BBC in 2020, writing, quote, the twisted combination of sex and violence that plays out on screen and in books and depictions of the American South is the region's grim legacy from the antebellum years, wherein the rape of slaves was not only commonplace, but in cases where children were produced, protected by law. The morally and sexually degraded Southern household was so often a mixture of secrecy, rape and hypocrisy that the thematic mixing of sex and violence in the Southern Gothic genre can't help but feel pointed. Now again, while Sister Sister very deliberately keeps race very much out of the equation for reasons, as I've just talked about previously, that we can process in a whole bunch of different ways, for better or for worse, 
there's no escaping, really, the absolute centrality of rape to this story. Now, I've got a particular professional interest in the representations of, of rape, attempted rape, sexual violence, gendered violence on screen. Uh, in particular, I've published three books on rape revenge films specifically, a book on Abel Ferrara's Miss 45 for Columbia University Press, and two editions of my book Rape Revenge Films, A Critical Study, the recent second edition marking the 10-year anniversary of the publication of the first version. So even from that first scene with Lucy's dream, sexual violence and aggression and rape are present in this world. As she drowns, she tries to push her lover away and he resists. So in many ways, it's hardly a surprise that this is the direction that the film goes. I mean, it's really strongly foreshadowed in, in that dream sequence. But the way it's introduced there, interestingly, implies that it is Lucy who is the survivor. And again, when we go to that crucial flashback where Judd is killed, it's actually really hard to tell if he's attempting to rape Lucy as a child. My personal feeling is that yes, he absolutely is. If it was just if he was just knocking her around a bit, I, I just don't know why you would have him lying on top of her in that particular way with her underneath in, in the way that she's positioned. And something about Charlie's reaction really does speak of a kind of urgency that to me at least sort of implies her thinking, you know, if he tried to rape me, he's going to try to rape her. It's vague and it can be taken in a different way, but certainly that's my take on it. But if we go to the scene where Charlie spies on Matt and Lucy having sex through the hole in the floor that she discovers in the attic just above Lucy's bedroom, what she finds here and how she responds is really fascinating. So the big things here in terms of the narrative are firstly that it triggers the full flashback of the attempted rape uh, by Judd. So we have that, which has been hinted at. It's spelled out right in front of us through this flashback. The other thing, of course, is that uh, Charlie finds the photo of the young Judd and as we realise later in the film, she makes the connection that the young Judd looks a lot like Matt. And she later remembers that Judd called his younger brother his little shadow, really binding the brothers together in many ways as closely as the sisters. So as an aside, what needs to be made clear here is that, as Matt notes later, he saw the whole thing. In terms of narrative, this leads to the killing of Judd, and that's why he's seeking revenge. But here's the thing, right? So if he saw his brother killed, then he also had to have seen what triggered it because it all happens very, very quickly and close together. And he clearly has no problem with that or as is possibly more, you know, uh, reasonable or, or understandable with a kid, it's normalised in his mind as being okay. But either way, something in Matt's brain makes him just a straight-up rape apologist and that makes him, to me, even creepier. But I want to go back to the attic with Charlie, going through the old trunk. One of the first things she finds is her party dress, and this seems to trigger positive memories. You know, she's messed up about Matt and Lucy hooking up, but she's, you know, she holds the dress up in front of her, and she's happy, she's smiling, she's, you know, there's this sense memory of herself as a young girl and excited about her party in a frilly dress. The only time we see her and Lucy's father is here, uh, he's a very strict authoritarian and he forbids Judd from coming to the party. And it is this that leads Charlie to sneaking off with him, which of course is where the attempted rape occurs. So two things are worth noting here. Firstly, that the misogyny that riddles this narrative world is not confined to Judd and Matt alone. There's also the question of classism and Charlie's anxieties about Etienne and Lucy's fondness for each other. Superficially, it's meant to be because Charlie is protective of Lucy and seeks to protect her by infantilizing her, forbidding her from any sexual or romantic contact. But I do think 
that the question of class also plays a factor there. But the second thing here that I think is really important um, also forces us to reconsider Charlie. When she opens that trunk and she takes out that dress, as I said, her memories are initially positive, happy ones. You know, she's smiling. Um, and for all intents and purposes, her long-term repression of what actually happened works, at least for a moment until it all comes back. So while there's all this attention on, oh, Lucy's the crazy one, I'm not convinced that everything's hunky-dory in Charlie Land either, and I think it's much more than her just being a devoted, protective sister. Now, I'm going to go into this more shortly, but the attic is really an important space in this film, and whenever it's shown, there seems to be an emphasis, either literal or just through framing, on Lucy's paintings. We have here a classic stereotype of the neurotic artist, and that Lucy herself says that she doesn't even really know if the paintings are meant to re represent herself or not, speaks volumes about how unsure she is of her own identity. The portrait in the, in the attic, you know, hidden in the attic, uh, immediately triggers, you know, assumptions and connections um, with Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. But I don't think that's the reference point here. What I think we're dealing with is another trope, uh, the gothic trope of the mad woman in the attic. So in gothic fiction, this is quite literal, and it goes back to the 19th century. Uh, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre from 1847 is probably the most classic uh, example in literature, but it's, it's not uncommon, and it's in film, and it's everywhere. That's where it comes from. So here I think we have a really interesting play on that, in that it's not Lucy herself is the mad woman in the attic, but it's representations of herself that are locked away and deemed mad. They are pretty dark paintings. But there's a repression here that forces her attempt to express herself as something shameful that should be hidden from view. And yes, that it's the attic where those paintings are hidden, I don't think is a coincidence. And I do think it's tapping into this Gothic tradition of the mad woman in the attic. So women and indeed femininity in general is something that across orthodox Southern Gothic fiction is associated with, you know, the transgressive, the monstrous, the excessive, the out of control. And we very much see that with Lucy. But that Charlie has this super, super weird moment in the attic too, I think really taps into this mad woman in the attic trope. I think, you know, I mean, the fact that she spies on her sister while she's shagging is a bit weird, a bit creepy. And again, there's that really strange moment where she reminisces and holds that dress up against herself and she's happy and smiling. You know, she does a little dance. It's like she's somewhere else completely. It's totally disassociated from the events that that dress is connected to until she can't repress it any longer and it all comes flooding back.
Alright, so as you're probably guessing by now, you could be picking up the vibes. I'm a little bit unsure about Charlie and, and her motives in this whole thing. Um, I, I've talked about her flashback in the attic, but it's it's important to remember that her flashback is primarily to her encounter with Judd. When we find out what Lucy's role in that encounter was, it's actually Lucy's flashback later that she has in the bath. So Charlie's even repressing things while she's having memories, whereas Lucy's not. Lucy's, Lucy's the one that remembers her own attempted rape, and I, I really do think that that Judd did attempt to rape Lucy. There's a shot of his face I think that's really important to pay attention to. Um, so when it comes to Charlie as this sort of super strong, capable, noble, protective sister, I'm just not sure if she... If I buy it, I think that she has her own significant psychological damage. And if anything, she's projecting that onto Lucy in a way that I think borders on abusive. Not abusive in the Matt and Judd kind of level of abuse, but as I noted earlier with Stephen Katz's reference to classical Hollywood film, there's one movie in particular that really leaps to mind when I think about Charlie and her relationship with Lucy in this film. Now it's not overt or direct and it's I don't even think it's in the film itself so this isn't me saying oh I think that this is what Bill Condon was thinking of um, but it makes me think a lot of George Cukor's Gaslight from 1944 with Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. So straight up I think that Sister Sister hinges around this really complex web of gaslighting. I think that Charlie has been gaslighting Lucy probably not knowing that she's doing it, sort of subconsciously gaslighting Lucy to cover up the killing of Judd because she can't deal with Lucy talking about it, the truth, because she's trying to repress it and Lucy's interrupting that. And she, her way of dealing with that is to convince both herself and Lucy that Lucy's nuts. Now, where this gets really complicated near the end is that we reach this insane situation where Matt, Matt's doing this weird version of gaslighting himself it's not straight direct gaslighting, but I think he thinks that Lucy's crazy, but he's trying to convince Lucy that she's not crazy and convincing her that Charlie is gaslighting her, um, which I think she is. I, I do think that, that Charlie is gaslighting Lucy, but I don't, I don't know if Matt thinks that. I, I just think that Matt is trying to manipulate both Lucy and Charlie. Um, you know, he's trying to get Lucy onto his side so that he can get his revenge against both of them for, for Judd's, Judd's death. You know, Charlie points this out, you know, it's divide and conquer. That's that's what he's trying to do. I realise that's quite confusing, so I'm going to map this all out because in many ways I think that if this is a film about rape trauma uh, centred around the Southern Gothic, which is such a, tr a strong tradition when it comes to, um, to, to rape narratives, I think that gaslighting in a way is sort of the engine that propels it all along. So first up, when we think of gaslighting, we think of that classic configuration of, you know, a man gaslighting a, a wife or a woman partner. This has become quite a broadly recognised act of psychological abuse in the domestic violence toolkit that's named after the film. Actually, it's named after a play. The film was an adaptation of an earlier stage play by a guy called Patrick Hamilton. Um, as a little footnote, Vincent Price was a massive fan of the stage play and he actually bought the rights and starred in it on Broadway um, under the name Angel Street. He loved it. But yes, the film is really where we all know the term from. And while I can't imagine that there's many of you who haven't seen it, there was an earlier version of the film, but it's really this uh, the Kukur one that's like the big one. 
The story is basically about a man who tries to convince his young new wife that she's going crazy. The title itself comes from the fact that she can see the brightness of the lights fluctuate. They go darker, they go brighter. But he convinces her, amongst many other things, that it's all her imagination, that she's going crazy. So it might feel like it's only recently that this concept of gaslighting has sort of entered the common popular vernacular as a term describing a specific kind of abuse. But apparently it's been around in a clinical context since the 1960s. Diane L. Shoes notes that even then, quote, psychologists began using the expression to describe an extreme form of psychological abuse whose goal was to control the victim's mind through fear and terror. She continues, the significance of gaslighting comes not simply from its strategy of deception, but also from its pernicious intent and effect to make the victim doubt his or her own perceptions and ultimately question his or her sense of reality. For Schuess, Gaslight the Film is therefore really important in the way that depictions of domestic violence became more sophisticated in their on-screen representation. She writes, quote, Gaslight is in multiple ways the urtext of Hollywood representations of domestic violence. The film is pathbreaking because of its focus on intimate partner violence in an era in which it was, if not totally unrecognised, considered a private matter. It is equally important because of its compelling portrait of abuse as psychological, emotional and verbal at a time when it was defined as solely physical. Indeed, notwithstanding its Victorian setting and Second World War release, the film Gaslight offers a more expansive view of domestic violence than many contemporary films through its uncharacteristically detailed representation of the various insidious types of non-physical abuse. So gaslighting is everywhere, in the real world, in screen culture. Going back to the Italian Giallo film that I mentioned so much earlier in this commentary, I mean, gaslighting is virtually a staple of Giallo film, especially in particular, you know, when I think of Giallo and gaslighting, I think of um, the Umberto Lenzi, Carol Baker collaborations and things like um, Sergio Martino's The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. There's no lack of gaslighting. In, in Jalo film. Now, Lindsay was interesting. He was an equal opportunity gaslighter, um, if we can use such a phrase. Um, I'm thinking here of the brother-centered gaslighting film Spasmo, which, although very different in a lot of ways from Sister Sister, I think does give us this very useful earlier and generically, you know, overlapping uh, example of where gaslighting doesn't have to just be about romantic partners. Now, Schuess uses the phrase intimate partner abuse, which, of course, she uses according to the common definition of the term as it's understood today, which I believe the CDC identifies as, quote, physical, sexual or psychological harm by a current or former partner or spouse. But if we take a step back from that and use the phrase intimate partner more loosely, I think that we can actually look at Charlie and Lucy through that lens. And I don't mean in like a Karen Arthur's Mafu Cage kind of way, you know, I'm not suggesting that there's a sexual relationship between Charlie and Lucy here, um, but their relationship is so obsessive as to sort of forsake all other relationships. And that's precisely the problem with Charlie's relationship with Cleve. Uh, and, you know, he kind of calls it out and that's, that's one of the sort of subplots of, of the film. But what I think is really important is that this obsession is a one-way street. It's Charlie who exerts that control over Lucy. And in fact, Lucy wants to spread her wings. You know, she, she kind of wants to snog Etienne. You know, she wants to rub uglies with Matt. 
Um, and, and it's Charlie who's stopping her. Absolutely, Lucy is perhaps not 100% all there, or at least we can forgive those around her for thinking so, the whole ghost thing, for example. But that Lucy and all those around them know Charlie, her name's Charlotte. Charlie is the masculinized version of her name, and I think it's very revealing that she's known as Charlie primarily rather than Charlotte. She's only called Charlotte a few times in the film, which is the feminized version of her name. She's masculinized. She's a masculinized character. So she's a woman called Charlie. And I do think that there is a kind of dominant power gendered thing going on there. Um, and if we think about the ghosts, I mean, Charlie in many ways, I think, through her unrelenting infantilization of Lucy, is almost going by the gaslighter's playbook. Now, this is from Deborah Phillips writing about gaslighting in domestic noir in film. And um, she talks about the original play of Gaslight. And she says about husband, uh, the, the gaslighting husband there, quote, Manningham infantilizes his wife from the very beginning of the play. There's a good child. He humiliates her in front of the servants, flirts with the maid and repeatedly suggests that she suffers from an extraordinary confusion of mind. The effects of this authoritarian bullying are clear from the character description of Mrs. Manningham. She has a haggard, one frightened air with rings under her eyes, which tell of sleepless nights and worse. The infantilization of Lucy by Charlie is everywhere in this film, and it's hard to escape. Um, it's one of those things that once you sort of tap into an awareness of it, you, you just can't miss it. There are dolls everywhere in this film. I mean, Charlie reads Lucy bedtime stories. I think at one point Lucy even says that Charlie loves her because she's her dolly. So yes, on the surface, we have this noble, self-sacrificing, protective older sister who's, you know, sacrificed her own chances of happiness with Cleve to look after her psychologically fragile little sister. But I think that the film itself, whether consciously or not, actually sort of subverts that or questions that. I do think that there's enough going on here, especially as the truth starts coming to the surface in the film's final third, that Charlie's motives are at least just as much to do with keeping Lucy subdued and infantilized and under her control by thinking she's crazy, just to keep her quiet about Judd's death. Now, this is complicated stuff, as I said, because in this sense, Matt is right, you know. I mean, he, he's saying, you know, she's trying to convince you that she's crazy. Um, but we also know that Matt is a psycho-killing rape apologist who works in politics, for that matter, so, you know, he can fuck off too. Now, another thing I think that's important for us to note with Sister Sister is that Diane L. Schuess also explicitly describes Gaslight as a gothic romance, and um, that has a very specific you know, connotation when it comes to um, a specific kind of narrative. But I think just loosely, this film does fall under the umbrella of a gothic romance. It's really downplayed, but I actually do think that we can add perhaps love story to the other kind of generic elements that we have here. And I think that that's a love story between Etienne and Lucy, and it's one that never really is allowed to get off the ground, um, primarily because of Charlie. Um, for all the barely disguised mockery, I think that Lucy receives about her belief in ghosts. And again, I think we see that at that really awkward dinner scene early in the film where Charlie really bullies Lucy into telling the assembled dinner guests about her experiences with ghosts. 
We find out at the end that, no, Lucy's not crazy. And in fact, it is a ghost who saves her when Matt tries to drown her. So this reframes the earlier story where she says that in a previous experience, the other ghost tried to protect her from the ghost of Judd. Now, when she says this, Charlie almost leaps out of her skin that her sister will say more. And certainly that raises Matt's eyebrows too, because at that point he's still, you know, incognito in terms of his mission to avenge his rapist piece of shit brother and his death. Um, so we can be fairly sure that this early story of Lucy's wasn't the product of a mental health issue. It was actually, you know, the ghost of Judd was out to get her and the other ghost protected her. Um, just as she was saved and it was Matt himself who was dragged underwater by the ghosts, uh, you know, at, at the climax of the film. And then of course is that beautiful shot, one of my favourite shots in this whole film, where our doomed lovers, Lucy and Etienne, almost touch hands, you know, the ladder from beyond the grave. And it's, a, it's just a really sad, tragic love story in this sense. And, you know, it's Charlie the gaslighter, you know, she gets her cop husband, but because of her repression and her fear of exposure, and I suspect, in, to some degree at least, her class hang-ups about Etienne too, all poor Lucy gets left with is basically PTSD and visions of Matt haunting her from beyond the grave. You know, these sort of really messed up hallucinations. All right, we're almost at the end of the film here and I've barely talked about anybody who had anything to do with making it aside from Stephen Katz. Um, so I'll remedy that here and, and have a chat about some of the people both in front of the camera and behind it. So Jennifer Jason Lee, of course, is at the heart of this and so many other films that she starred in. Even by this stage, she'd, she'd just done some really great and sometimes very controversial films. Um, she was in Amy Heckerling's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. She was in Paul Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood and Robert Harmon's The Hitcher. The last two both, coincidentally, of course, with Rutger Hauer. Um, I mentioned this as an aside, just a little plug. I wrote a whole book on The Hitcher, which I still just insist is one of the greatest films ever made so you should totally buy my book on the hitcher um sister sister also came out the year before matthew chapman's heart of midnight which to this day remains one of my favorite jennifer jason lee films even despite the yanni soundtrack and if you haven't seen it it's just some really really dark shit and in a weird way uh especially on the question of um, mental health and sexualization and the infantilization of women um, I think that both Sister Sister and Heart of Midnight are a really interesting double bill if you're a Jennifer Jason Lee fan, or even if you're not, I think that they're a really interesting pair of films to watch in tandem. Now Judith Ivey, who plays Charlie, is a really, really fascinating woman also. She's done some really interesting work in film and television, um, but her strengths mostly are in theatre. She was not only an actor, but a director, a stage director also. In the years before Sister Sister, Ivy won two Tony Awards for Best Featured Actress in a Play, one in 1981 for Steaming, which was adapted into a now relatively unknown film by Joseph Losey, starring Vanessa Redgrave of the same name, and Ivy also received a Tony for Best Actress for Hurley Burley in 1984, which again also had a film version made in, I think, 1998 with Sean Penn. Uh, it's honestly not that great. Your view may differ. Good for you. Now, as a screen actor, Ivy really came to the public attention with Frank Perry's compromising positions in 1985 with Susan Sarandon. And in an interview with Ivy in the Los Angeles Times during the production of Sister Sister, Christine McKenna summarized Ivy's career up to this point by suggesting that, quote, 
Ivy's greatest successes on both stage and screen have found her playing the sort of women generally referred to as broads. I love that quote. So here's the section of the interview where they talk about Sister Sister. Uh, this interview was done by a phone actually from Louisiana where uh, Ivy was based when she was actually making the film. Quote, in Sister Sister, a steamy southern gothic tale set on a crumbling plantation in Louisiana written and directed by Bill Condon, Ivy co-stars with Jennifer Jason Lee. Ivy plays, quote, a woman who spent her life taking care of her younger sister because of a secret they've shared since they were young girls. She's turned their plantation into a bed and breakfast place and has never married, Ivy explained. The film unravels the mystery of why these two attractive women live together and never have relationships. Though Ivy obviously has no trouble finding challenging film parts of a varying nature, she remains loyal to the scene of her earlier success, the New York stage. I still prefer working on the stage to working in film, she said. And as soon as Sister Sister wraps, I'll be returning to New York to begin rehearsals for Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit, which opens on Broadway in the spring. Which, in fact, is exactly what she did. Now, it is perhaps worth saying that this film didn't have a particularly strong response from critics, and as I suggested earlier, I do think really this is because of the kind of there's a surface shallowness to this film and I think that just made a lot of critics really lazy and not actually dig deeper at what was ticking away underneath which I do hope here I've at least scratched the surface of to give you a, a general idea that that this is actually a super interesting film with heaps going on. Now this review from Kevin Thomas at the Los Angeles Times at the time of uh, Sister Sisters release really sort of sums up I guess the kind of snobby bitchiness a lot of critics had with, and you know they used to justify their dismissal of this movie and frankly speaking for myself they can all get fucked because this film is awesome wrote Mr Kevin Thomas and I'm going to read this in full just so you get a sense of how this film was sort of you know covered in the mainstream uh not by all critics but I, I do think this is pretty you know representative Sister Sister is such a silly and contrived piece of southern gothic nonsense that it deserves to end up on the lower half of the bill with the, that other piece of Bayou Bilge, shy people. Whatever are Eric Stoltz, the young star of Mask, the lovely Jennifer Jason Leigh, and the always splendid Judith Ivy doing in such a hopelessly trite tale of psychological suspense? Ivy presides over a white-column ancestral Louisiana plantation that she has turned into a bed and breakfast inn. For years she has been putting off marrying the nice local sheriff and fretting over her younger sister, who has done a stint in a mental institution and seemingly remains delicately balanced. When a new guest arrives, Ivy begins to seem deranged as she becomes consumed with fear that a romance might blossom between him and Lee. To be sure, there's a terrible secret the sisters share and also an obligatory final real surprise twist. The revelations are entirely mechanical, for all these people are too lifeless to engage us in the first place. The fault lies not with the actors, who clearly try hard, but with writer Bill Condon and his colleagues Joel Cohen and Ginny Sorella. Condon, who is also making his feature directorial debut, compounds a lack of originality by taking his material too seriously. The only real life in Sister Sister, rated R for sex and violence, is supplied all too briefly by veteran actress Anne Petoniak, who was unforgettable in the stage version of Night Mother, and is here a wonderfully brassy, good-natured New Jersey widow who after one night at the creepy plantation sensibly gets herself, her daughter and her son-in-law to the nearest Holiday Inn. When Ivy at the end of the film says, thank God it's over, there's an almost audible Amen. 
I haven't actually mentioned Anne Petoniak here. She is fabulous as Mrs. Bettelhelm. Um, there's some much needed comedy value, I think, with her character. I think there's that fabulous Cruella de Vil style wig that sort of adds this sort of cartoonish villainy that stands out in such contrast to Eric Stoltz's more subtle monstrosity in this movie. Now, Stoltz himself got top billing. Um, he's always great. And as this review that I've just quoted uh, notes, he came to this off the back of Mask, which was huge. And I might also add that he had just done also some kind of wonderful, the John Hughes film, which was, you know, quite the, quite the big thing with kids at the time. Um, along with Jennifer Jason Lee, he also popped up earlier in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And a few years after this, you know, he'd gone to do heaps of stuff, but he won my heart forever. Uh, when he did The Fly 2, a film really that I'll defend for all eternity with a knife in my teeth. I love Eric Stoltz's performance in this film. Um, I mean, I, I think that I wouldn't consider him the lead. I think it's really about Jennifer Jason Leigh and Judith Ivey. Um, but there's something about Stoltz in this film that reminds me so much, so, so much of a very young um, Ben Mendelsohn. And obviously I'm Australian and it's it's a known fact that if I don't mention Ben Mendelsohn in every single commentary I do, I do risk losing my citizenship. Um, but I, I also actually mean it. The scene, you know, the big climactic scene where um, Stoltz pulls a gun on um, Charlie, there, there's heavy, heavy Mendo vibes, as we would say in Australia. Heavy Mendelsohn vibes. You guys can call him Mendo. I give you permission. All right, so behind the scenes, we have Joel Cohen. <laughs> no, not that Joel Cohen. C-O-H-E-N, not C-O-E-N, as more blogs that I am comfortable with seem to consistently fuck up. And along with director Bill Condon and Ginny Sorella, again, as noticed in that review, uh, they all co-wrote the screenplay. Um, Ginny Sorella didn't really do much else. She did a few TV movies, but Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, he has got a crazy filmography. Now, this was his second writing credit, I think, after the 1986 film Hot Money that Orson Welles pops up in. Why not? Um, but really, he would go on to collaborate on very, very famous family-friendly films like uh, Steve Martin's Cheaper by the Dozen, both Garfield and Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties, Daddy Day Camp, and um, most famously, If His Name Rings a Bell from Anywhere. Um, with the correct spelling, he was one of the many writers credited on Toy Story in 1995. He also pops up in a small role on screen in Strange Invaders from 1983, which was co-written co by Bill Condon. And my favourite random filmography entry of his is that he co-wrote and co-directed the 1995 movie version of Monster Mash with Candace Cameron or Candace Cameron Bure for those who aren't growing pains purists. Now, the editor of this film, Virginia Katz, is also worth mentioning. This was a very early credit for her, um, but she worked on uh, Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh, which was Condon's next directorial feature film after Sister, Sister. And this was after him basically being condemned to the realm of TV movies for probably around eight years or so after Sister, Sister as a director. Um, Katz would also be a, a, another long-running collaborator with Condon, um, she worked on many of his directorial projects, including Gods and Monsters, Dreamgirls, the Twilight Breaking Dawn movies, uh, Mr. Holmes, Beauty and the Beast, The Good Liar. You get the idea. Condon would actually go on to work with a lot of people behind the scenes that he worked with on Sister Sister. 
Another notable name, I think, is production designer Richard Sherman. Uh, again, Gods and Monsters, uh, Kinsey, the Twilight movies. Yeah, you know, he, he does return to the, to the same people. Now, this all leads us to Bill Condon himself, who, as an aside, has a very brief cameo in Sister Sister as a priest, I believe. Now, he's such an interesting filmmaker, and Sister Sister was the sort of the start, I guess, of a really diverse career. He's very agile in the kind of films that he can dart between, not just as a director, but also as a screenwriter. You know, so we have things like the sequels to Twilight and Candyman. He did biopics or quasi-biopics like Kinsey and Dreamgirls. Uh, he did screen adaptations of the musical Chicago, and he also did the still jaw-dropping Gods and Monsters, which was also an adaptation. He was nominated for Oscars for the Best Adapted Screenplays for both Chicago and Gods and Monsters, and he won for Gods and Monsters. So yes, you can you can call Sister Sister the film by the Oscar-winning director <laughs> Bill Condon. So the story goes that the original vision for Sister Sister was very different from the version that ends up here, um, but test screenings threw a spanner in the works, as they so often do, and Condon was forced to make changes, which, um, you know, we can perhaps suggests that that might have resulted in its somewhat lackluster commercial and certainly critical response. I think it was made for about $4 million and took a little under 750000 at the box office. So no, not, not really a winner on the commercial front. Now, this wasn't the best way to launch a directorial career in industrial terms, but to his credit, he just kept plugging away. You know, Condon just kept writing. He kept directing. You know, he did many, many years of TV movies after this. And it does feel like it might have almost been punishment, you know, that he sort of had to earn his way back to feature filmmaking, which he did and won a, won a fucking Oscar, you know, like, good for him, you know, the coin that the guy must have made just from the Twilight films alone, like, yeah, and, and this is where it all sort of started um, on the directorial front. And so we come to the end of Sister Sister and it's a happily ever after for Charlie, but maybe not for Lucy. Although surely her life without her gaslighting sister is a step forward now that the truth about Judd and Matt, for that matter, is all out in the open. But there is a sadness, and I think that the romantic wedding at the end contrasts so sharply with that just out of reach final chance of a connection between Etienne and Lucy. The real true loves, I think, at the heart of this film. Sister Sister is a really strange, dark little beast, and this film has a lot more going on than I think it's really given credit for. My name is Alexandra Hella Nicholas. Thank you so much for joining me for the last hour and a half or so as we've wandered through this strange North American giallo slash Southern Gothic slash kinky little fairy tale, whatever you want to call it. I'm glad we did this journey together. Thank you.